Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Many uh, stories in the Bible have uh, great elements of great stories. Novels uh, are fictitious, but the stories in the Bible are real. And as you read through even history books, you find uh, great stories and uh, as you read through the Bible, I think you find the same thing. And here in Second Samuel, you find all the elements of that of a great story. Um, you see the, the main characters and, and their uh, growth over time and how they change. And uh, even as we've just looked at in you know just a few chapters, you see uh, murder, love, um, lust. You see uh, advice people unsure if they're good or bad, and, and sometimes you come to passages and you're not quite sure where you might label someone. We kind of talked about this when we looked at Eli. Obviously, Hophni and Phinehas were worthless fellows, worthless uh, men as the Bible describes them, but Eli, where, where did he fall on this, this chart, you might say, of good or evil? Um, we watched a, a movie with our children uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I won't tell you the movie, so it's not much of a spoiler alert, but uh, the person who you thought was the good guy actually turned out to be the bad guy, and the person who was labeled as the bad guy for all the, uh, by everyone else has actually turned out to be the good guy. And uh, sometimes you see these arcs in these stories, but, and we see somewhat of a similar thing here in these pages of Scripture, especially 2 Samuel chapter 14. It's a, it's a complex passage to be able to wrap your head around because you're not quite sure what the outcome is. You, you, you have a hard time understanding it. And, and what makes it hard is, is what makes a good guy and a bad guy different is often not what they do. I think there, there can be uh, clear signs of that, but what makes it different is motives. Someone can be doing a good thing for the wrong reasons, and someone can be doing the wrong things um, and, and in their mind, they're thinking it, it's the right reasons. And it's hard to be able to understand when you, you don't quite get all the information uh, that you might see. So you read through chapter 14 and you think, well, what a good thing this is. This is, uh, you know, uh, wisdom, you might say. But I think what we'll see is that it's really cloaked wisdom. It actually is wisdom that it, it pretends to be wisdom, worldly wisdom that is actually foolishness. Now, before we begin, we need to kind of set uh, where we are in uh, these chapters. And it's hard for us to um, come every week. We come every week and, and we read through different things. But where we are in the, the scope of things, sometimes in the pages of Scripture, it is few chap- there's you know, several chapters and they cover a small amount of time. You think about uh, you know, most of the Gospels. You know, a large chunk of the Gospels is actually the last week of Jesus' life. Um, so the, his earthly ministry, they're really summarizing and trying to focus on this last week of Jesus' life. Whereas in these chapters, we, we have stories that are pieced together, but, but there's large periods of time between them. So, it, you know, we had Amon uh, and the rape of Tamar in Second Samuel chapter 13. What happens is a period of two years when Tamar is living with Absalom, and then Absalom finally has his sheep-shearing party and uh, where he murders his brother. 
So a period of two years has gone by, and then Absalom flees. He runs away, and he goes to Geshur, and he's there for a period of three years. So where we find ourselves is it's five years after uh, the rape of Tamar. So in the period of 13 and 14, we've, we've traveled a period of time of five years. So a lot has happened, and a lot has changed over these five years. So that's where we are today, and then we'll, we'll see this even a period of time as we look at the second half next week of two years. So it's a large period of time that we're covering, large period of time. So, but before we begin with chapter 14, now we kind of have a bit of an idea of where we are in the timeline of things. I want to highlight one thing before we start studying it, and that is that David's name is not mentioned in chapter 14 at all. David is not mentioned at all. The, the last time that his name appears in uh, the, the Hebrew uh, text is in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 30. And while they were on their way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's son. Not one of them is left. Now, we know that this was a uh, misunderstanding, a jump to conclusion type uh, situation where it was only Amon that was uh, 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 killed. But from this point on, in chapter 13, verse 30, from that point on, he's referred to as the king. And he's only referred to as the king. Now, some translations uh, put his name in at verse 37 um, of chapter 13. Absalom fled and went to uh, Talmai, the son of uh, Muhammad, uh, Elm Ehud, uh, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. Now, that does not say David in the original text. What it says is um, that he he mourned for his son day after day. Um, now the uh, Septuagint and uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls do actually put David in there, but that that uh, beside the point. Chapter fourteen, the one that we're looking at today, does not have David mentioned at all. Uh, but He's referred to as the king, and he's referred to as the king about 39 times throughout this whole passage. And about 39 times in these 33 verses, he's referred to as the king. Now, this tells us the facts. This tells us what chapter 14 records, that it's not David, but it's the king. Um, The author, Nathan, at this point, I believe, doesn't say why he only refers to him as the king. But there's a clear difference. Now, sometimes you might be able to see that sometimes, you know, like Israel and and Jacob, those those names are used sometimes deliberately, and other times it's just, um, you you can't really uh, base a large theological point or an emphasis on that. You can make them, but I think that to say that this is the exact reason why, whereas chapter 14, there's a clear difference in how Nathan is recording this. So there's different reasons why you might say that uh, he's only referred to as the king. And so here are some maybe suggestions, and we can talk about this later if you can think of others. But the first is that the author is showing a separation between David and Absalom. What he's making him do is separating them rather than being David, Absalom's father. He's the king, that he should be acting as the king and not as Absalom's father. So that's the first potential reason. The second shows that there's a power struggle or that has begin, begins or has already started 
between his house. That you could say there's these battle of kings. You have the king on one side, David, and then you have the prince who will be the king, Absalom. This battle of who will fight, who will win in the end. And this might be an underlying thing here. Thirdly, it shows the role of the king. Again, more to that first point that he's not the father, but he's the king. But more of an emphasis that what is the duty of the king? The duty of the king is to uphold God's law. You think about what replaced. You used to have judges who ruled in Israel. And they would rule geographically small regions. But then they asked for a king. And a king was to judge as well. A king was to be a a judge over the whole nation. To rule the whole nation. So, And I think you see this uh, relationship between this woman and the king coming before her to judge this situation. Now, all of these, I think, are valid to some degree. But mainly that King David is the official leader of the people. But yet he is more moved by emotion, by persuasion, by others' influence of that. And yet there's a subtleness that he's, he doesn't quite follow God's word. Now I'm interested to hear later what you think maybe some of those reasons are why he's referred to as the king and not just David. So let's begin with this passage. At first we'll start with Joab's plan. And we're told something later on that we'll, we'll, we'll sneak ahead to that helps us um, understand this a little bit more. In Second Samuel verse 14 verse 20, it says, the woman who comes before um, King David says that Joab did this in order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. Now we don't know exactly the motive behind the plan. What was he trying to accomplish in changing the course of things? Um, there, there can be many. We know what his outcome wanted. He wanted a difference. He wanted a changed outcome. That's what he wanted. That's why he did this. So there's a couple of reasons why he might have wanted this different outcome to come about. Maybe it was a military concern. That he was concerned about uh, the military of, of what's going to happen to the divided house. What's going to happen if Absalom's out of our sight, out of our reach, out of our way in a different place in Gesher? Is he going to then start making his own army that's going to rise up? And if you're the captain of the guard, if you're the, the, the commander-in-chief uh, in your army, you're going to be concerned about this. So he's, uh, he's worried about what Absalom might do out of his sight. So maybe if he could bring him back, then that would then diffuse this situation. He can't really make an army uh, right before their eyes. They'll clue in on a couple of things. Secondly, it might be that he's, he's concerned about loyalty. He's, he's worried that David's house might fall, that Absalom might rise up, that David's house would crumble. We see this kind of in the woman's response that, there's a bit of her argument that she's worried about the second son being killed, that her, uh, she wouldn't have an heir. They'd be killing the heir. And maybe thirdly, that uh, he's seeking to be able to do what he did to Abner. That you remember how he dealt with Abner and how he eliminated the threat of Abner by killing Abner without David knowing. And maybe he was seeking for an opportunity to be able to do this. We don't know. What we know is he wanted to change the outcome of the events. Um, 
So let's uh, begin with verses 1 and 3 to see what his plan is. Now Joab, the son of Zeruah, uh, went, uh, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So Joab seeks to be able to change the outcome. He calls this woman from Tekoa. It's about 10 miles south from Jerusalem. And she's known and is recorded in the ESV as, as a wise woman. Now, I think wise is, is a wrong use of word. Maybe it's correct in the sense that it's used before, just a chapter before, in fact, when it talks about Amon's friend, Jonadab, who's David's nephew. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. Now, that same word is used here about to describe this woman. And how we describe that when we talk about Jonadab was that he was wise in the sense that he could get what he wanted. He was wise that he'd be able to work out the outcome and work out how to make things happen that he could get the outcome that he wanted. He was wise in the world, like a master chess player that was able to think of a couple of moves ahead. So now Amon was using Jonadab to be able to get what he wants. Now Joab is using this wise, this worldly wise woman, to get what he wants, this crafty woman, you might say. So he finds this woman uh, from Tekoa and uh, puts words in her mouth. She is to be the actor in Joab's master plan to change the course of things. So now this woman uh, has been summoned, paid by Joab to go and stand before the king as a mourner who has lost um, some, uh, who has been pretending to mourn for the dead. And now she has the woman's, woman's plea in verses 4 to 7. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons. And they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them. And one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they also would, all would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave it uh, to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. So we find out exactly what words Joab had placed in her mouth. That she tells of this story of her fake dead husband who has passed away leaving her two pretend sons. And these two sons who go out uh, into the field one day and there arises an argument um, if you've ever had any boys or any siblings, you understand how quickly this uh, can come about. But eventually, uh, this argument turned into a fatal uh, brawl where one is killed. So, now she has a dilemma. People in her clan are coming up to try and 
have justice brought to this second child, but if they were to kill him, she is concerned that then no one would be left for her, for her dead husband's uh, lineage and, and line. There would be no more of their name. So what is the king meant to do? He, he has a case before him, uh, a case there he needs to judge as the ruler pass judgment on this situation. So now the king has to do something. What has the king has to do? So he answers the woman and tells her in verse 8, to go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. Now, he, he, he does. He acts as the king, as the official in charge, that often when he, say, when he says, I will give orders concerning you, often this, this term is used throughout the Bible to, to depict a military commander instructing their soldiers in what they are to do. But this answer is not good enough for the woman. She needs an answer now. It's not good enough that she goes home, doesn't get the outcome that she needs. Again, this crafty woman who is able to, to understand the situation. This is not the outcome Joab wanted. He wanted to change the course of things. So she's very persistent. This is what we see in verses 9 to 11. Again, she gives another glorious speech in verse 9. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord, your God, that the avenger of the blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair on your son shall, be, shall fall to the ground. This, this woman did not come just for him to be able to say that he'll eventually give order. She needs an answer right now. Again, very persistent. She needs some form of guarantee from the king to, to be able to say what is going to happen to her pretend son. She needs an answer. She needs the king to be able to make a promise. And that's exactly what she does. The second response that the king gives is not good enough. In verse 10, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me. He shall never touch you again. Her concern is not about her. Her concern is about her pretend son. So, she then tells him, in verse 11, to invoke the Lord your God. And specifically instructs him that the avenger of blood kill no more. And my son be not destroyed. She wants a specific outcome in this situation. Invoke the Lord your God, Yahweh. It's not good enough to say that I have your word or that you'll bring them to you. I need you to invoke God's name. And that's what David does. The end of verse 11, he explains, As the Lord lives, not a hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Now, this is a serious comment. It's, it's, it's serious in that you are swearing by the Lord. You're taking an oath and a vow by the Lord. And we've seen this a couple of times that Saul would do the exact same thing. 
he would make an oath and he'd swear by the Lord. He'd use God's name, but he didn't seem to be using it. It was like this this cloak of, of what he was trying to do. Occasionally it's used in First and Second Samuel as a as a form of a of a good oath that they're they're seeking to be able to follow through this. But Joab's plan is now working out perfectly. Tell him this story. Put these these words in his mouth. It worked for Nathan when he came and told the story about this lamb and the owner. And what you need to be able to do is is get him to make a promise, invoking the name of the Lord or something like this, to to make a promise about what he's going to do with this legal situation. But then I'm going to put more words in your mouth. After he's done this, then here's where you really need to practice this speech. And we see this again in verses 12 and 17, a long speech here. And then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord, the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring the banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. That God will not take away life. He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. And I have come to say this to my Lord the King because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the King. It may be that the King will perform the request of his servant. For the King will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my Lord the King will set me at rest. For Lord, my Lord the King, is like an angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. I'm sure she rehearsed this speech many a time, practiced it maybe in front of Joab, and and made sure she emphasized the words correctly. And she tries to have a similar impact to what Nathan had when he turned around and said, you are the man. She, she turns around and says, you convict yourself. Now this is why this is interesting. Externally, I think we can listen and follow her train of thought. We can sympathize with her pretend son. That her, her name will not be lasted, her name will not continue. Her husband's name would not continue. Even in, in verse 14, we, we see what this appears to be wisdom. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so the banished one will not remain an outcast. And the woman comes and and she accuses David, the king, of devising plans against the people of God in verse 13. But she she emphasizes that it's God who devises the means, that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now, 
This is where this apparent wisdom seems cloaked. That we can see, seek to be able to sympathize with it, to be able to feel the emotions of her pretend son and what they are to do. But there's a great difference between the story she told and that of Amon and Absalom. It's not just a story of two brothers that one kills the other. In Exodus 21, we see clearly, But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, he shall take him from my altar, that he may die. Again, she invokes God's name and says that God devises a means to be able to carry this out. We see a distinction here in in Exodus 21. There's a difference between uh, a a murder happening by happenstance, like two brothers getting in a fight in a field. There's a completely different thing when two years has been, when planning and cunning has been about. There's two different outcomes. Exodus 21 says the, the one which happens just by happenstance, two by accident. Then there's going to be a city of refuge for them to go to. But the one who who lies in cunning and plans and waits and seeks to be able to kill them, willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning. We see this again in Numbers chapter 35, where it lays out that six cities shall be a refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them. That anyone uh, anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. In verse 25 of chapter 35, in Numbers. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of the blood. And the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge, to which he had fled. And he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. And again further on in verse 28. For he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. So here we have a specific instance where there's a difference between uh, murder, you might say, and killing someone or, or manslaughter. And we need to understand this situation a little bit more. Why this is wisdom that is cloaked. Numbers is very clear on particular items of how it is, particularly particularly in verse 15. We see here that there are six cities that are meant to be set apart as refuge. These six cities were uh, divided up when when Joshua went in and, and there was a conquest over land. These six cities were assigned by Joshua in Joshua chapter 20. Kadesh, Shechem, Hebron, Bezer, Ramoth, and Golan. These six cities were set apart for this specific purpose. So it's that they're to flee to a a city of refuge. The second is that, and explains it very clearly and not so clearly in this translation, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. That again, there's a distinction here. A better word might be, say, unintentionally, as it's translated other times, or by mistake. 
that her situation where she describes of her two sons playing or working in the field and they begin to fight. And one thing leads to another and these, these two brothers and, and one accidentally kills another or one deliberately kills each other, but it was from a spur of emotion, emotion that this comes about. This is again, Joshua chapter 20 spells it out very clearly that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you, you a refuge from the avenger of the blood. But the example she gives is not the same example of what happened with these two brothers. Absalom, we're very clear about what happened in this situation. That Absalom sought to be able to take things into his hands. And by great length went to be able to devise this plan. There's just six things that he did deliberately to be able to find that situation, to be able to kill, uh, do this. Second Samuel chapter 13, verse 22, we find out that he hated him. So a period of two times, he's sitting there and he hates him. The next thing that we find out, that he invited all the king's sons to his house. Obviously, this is a situation where he's inviting them for a purpose, and then when they refuse to come, he went out of his way to invite Amon specifically. It actually says that he pressed David. He persuaded David several times. It's the emphasis that, that, um, that Absalom was the one doing the pressing. Not only that, then he commands his servants. So he's waiting these two years, plans this big party. Once he's finally here, he gives instruction specifically to be able to go and uh, kill Amon when he's merry with wine. But even we find out in verse 32, Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons. For Amon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. So not only we see all these connections between his long devised plan, we actually find out the exact moment where he planned this to happen. And then we're told that Absalom then fled three times. The author specifically instructs us in verse 34, 37, and 38. That Absalom was fleeing this situation. And there's a great difference between these two situations. That to be able to apply the law in the same uh, circumstances, um, an error. One commentator puts the difference between uh, Nathan's parable and the the lady from Tekoa's parable. William uh, Blakey says this, Nathan's parable was designed to rouse the king's conscience as against his own his feelings. The woman of Tekoas, as prompted by Joab, was to rouse his feelings against his conscience. One seeks to be able to rouse the conscience against his feelings. The other's his feelings against his conscience. And in this situation, one is manslaughter and the other is murder. 
But this is what we need to see, that David is sitting here not as a father. And maybe he's, he's letting his, his fatherness get in the way of what he should be doing as king. That the king is the one who is passive in all of these chapters. Chapter 13, chapter 14. Even later on, we see Absalom doing a lot of kingly duties. Commanding people to go and come and go and this way and that. But David seems passive in a lot of this. That he, he's, he's not the one leading and commanding. He's the one who is, who is reacting to others. We can have various views on the law today as, as how the law should be applied to society today. I like the term general equity thereof. That the principles of the law are applied to societies, but they do so differently. However, you could say that one of the greatest problems ever since the start of, um, ever since the fall, is the response of anger and taking the life of another. What we would then say is murder. Cain and Abel. It was not that they were just in a field and they got in a fight. Although there are similarities between those two stories. But we know long before that, that in Genesis chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, before this field event happened, that Cain had in his regard, he had, uh, offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That here you see, before this event happened, there's anger that's building up in in Cain. That eventually when they come to that moment, there are similarities to this Cain and Abel and what happened to Cain and, and, and the punishment that was due to him. What happened to Cain? Who administered the punishment to Cain? It was God who administered the punishment to Cain. And the punishment to Cain is clearly spelled out that he was then to be able to go, to flee, to wander. When you work the ground, you shall yield it to its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth that he then goes to settle in Nod, east of Eden. That God's devising of plans when a a murder happens was that he was then to be an outcast or wanderer far off. But then you see the woman's, the woman of Tekoa's wisdom is actually the opposite and she actually says God would want the opposite. But God will not take away life. He devises means so the banished one will not remain an outcast. But in Cain's punishment, he was to be banished. He was to be an outcast. He was to be distant. And to overlook this is not just a mere reading of the law and being able to say, you know, in this, you, you know, you crossed a certain line. You know, you find this, it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, you really can't up hold the law in many situations. You, 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 sometimes there's laws that are written that are hard to be able to keep. You know, thinking about, um, um, you know, just for example, uh, looking for building permits with our 
uh, house that we're doing work on. For us to be able to build that up to code is going to be next to impossible. We're going to have to get exemptions in certain areas and fields. But the law is pretty strict, but it gives leeway in certain areas. But this is not merely about how you apply a law to a certain situation. It comes down to one of the, the oldest, you might say, commandments in the Bible. You say one of the greatest commandments and first commandments is to go forth and multiply. So it's a positive commandment to go forth and multiply. And what actually happens after the flood is we get this commandment in Genesis chapter 9, verse 4 and 6. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And your lifeblood I will require reckoning. From every beast I will require require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For man made, uh, God made man in his own image. So you see the positive go forth and multiply. To be able to take life is doing the opposite of that. It's taking that of the image bearers of God and, and removing them. Subtraction. So you see here that the, the justice is foundational in this one principle that flows throughout. The justice is founded on many different things and many different levels. To be able to understand justice, you, might, you must be able to say wrong has been done. Sin has been committed. And a payment is required. This is why justice often is depicted in a weight of two scales. The wrong has been done to another and justice is trying to balance out those scales. That there's two sides to a story. Now obviously we don't have perfect justice. But that's the general premise that wrong has been done and that wrong needs to be corrected to some level. Now we can sympathize with Absalom and what he did to uh, Amon because of his sister Tamar. But that doesn't mean we remove the system which God has established to rule over and rule well. That we need to be cautious of the wisdom of man, which in the end is foolishness. Because the great danger in this woman's plea, the words which Absalom has put into her mouth, is in verse 17 where we will finish tonight. That my Lord, the King, is like an angel of God to discern good and evil. What did the serpent say to Adam and Eve? Well, if you eat of this, then you will be able to discern good and evil. That you think yourself higher than God be able to understand this. These are the words of the serpent in Genesis 3, 5. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this this lady, possibly through flattery, is trying to say to, to David, you are like an angel of God who can discern good and evil. But this is the problem 
in this period, that the period is, is seeking to find a king, but not just a king, but a king who does what, what is right in the eyes of God, not in, right in his own eyes. That this is just cloaked wisdom, and it's not, in fact, wisdom. What appears to be cloaked justice, but it, in fact, is not justice at all. The gospel is not that we just pretend things didn't happen, that our sin didn't exist. It does not then seek to be able to make something smaller than it is, which is what the women's, woman's parable actually does. It seeks to be able to say, this is the situation that happened to Absalom. That is not true. There are different situations. The truth of the matter is that we're not just invited back to God's presence and pretend like nothing happened. That we are truly justified And therefore, we're allowed back in God's presence because of what Christ has done. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 3. And are justified by the grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The payment has to be paid. The scales cannot be uneven. This is why he then writes in chapter 5, Therefore we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not fake justice. It is true justice where someone then takes the punishment for our sins. And as we read through 2 Samuel, we're reminded once more that we have not reached heaven yet. We don't need David who does what is right in his own eyes, who is influenced by emotions. We need the son of David, not Absalom, but Jesus the true king to come who will lay down life for his sheep, who has come, who has justified, who has balanced the scales, not just by neglecting it or hoping that it hasn't done, but he's taken our punishment and our sin. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.